Before we get to the show, let me tell you about Hotel Tonight. By showing you top-rated hotels with unsold rooms, Hotel Tonight makes it easy to book your stay at an amazing rate. And even though their name's Hotel Tonight, you can book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to the great band Yola Tango for the intro music. We've had a few chefs on as of late. You could probably say that they're chef series. We've had the Simone chef, Jessica Largi, the Subumi chef, David Slosher, amongst others. Today we have Chef Dan Giusti of Brigade. You might not know the name and you might not know the organization, but I encourage you guys to look it up and to support him and his organization, Brigade, a for-profit group that is trying to make school lunches better for students in New London, Connecticut, and the Bronx. And hopefully that program will grow. He is a highly accomplished chef that has decided to change focus and to make food better for those that need it the most. We recorded this after the MAD Symposium, something that has happened almost every year in Copenhagen, hosted by Rene Redzepi, the chef of Noma. And I've gotten to know Rene and uh, Dan and the whole Noma team really well over the years. But Dan's story is remarkable because of uh, where he started and where he's at right now. Without going too deep into the podcast, as I talk about it, I encourage you obviously to listen to the whole thing. You'll notice that there's going to be a lot of uh, sports references. I am doing this because I continue to get some feedback from listeners that so many of the chefs we talk about are too esoteric and they have no reference. So I'm going to try to give more analogies. Unfortunately, almost all of my analogies are either sports or some kind of pop culture, but I really want to find a a reference point for listeners that are unfamiliar with this world of fine dining and sort of the international chef game of such. And You know, Dan is doing something incredibly important and it's an honor to talk to him because I admire him a great deal for finding what's important to him. And I really hope that other cooks out there, or if you are someone that supports better eating for anyone, not just kids, listen to this. And you don't have to support Dan and Brigade. There are many organizations and it's important for Dan to explain that good food and proving yourself doesn't have to happen in a fancy restaurant with a lot of accolades. That has, um, I feel, run its course a little bit. And, you know, when I hear Dan tell me about cooking for kids in need, it really puts in the focus what's important. People need to eat well. And I think there's a healthy dose of narcissism in restaurants. And I'm trying to find what that balance is between feeding people and cooking for yourself. And I'm really proud of Dan that he's been able to find what works best for him and the mission that he's on at Brigade to feed kids in need. As you can tell, we're good friends. And I apologize if it's a little jokey jokey, but Brigade is an important organization. I hope that you support it. And if you're a cook out there, 
remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing and you can make a difference. It doesn't have to be for a brigade. There are plenty of other organizations out there. And I have to remind myself, you know, what kind of difference are we trying to make? What kind of food am I trying to make? And someone like Dan Giusti is someone that can help center what the fuck I'm doing in my own life. And uh, I think he's really inspirational and I hope that you find him to be so as well. So thank you very much. And without further ado, here is a conversation with Dan Giusti, Chef of Brigade. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show. We are in Copenhagen. When I say we, I'm with my special guest, Dan Giusti of Brigade, formerly head chef of Noma. Before we start, I just want to say the reason why we are in Copenhagen is this is, I think, the sixth or seventh MAD Symposium, something that got started many years ago now with Rene Redzepi. I think this is almost a decade ago when we were doing the traveling circuit for cooking and stuff like that. And when we were younger and we needed to commiserate as to how things were happening in the business. And I had the, I don't know how it all happened, but long story cut short, he decided to host the symposium called MAD. MAD means food in Danish. And it was going to be a little bit different than the other symposiums. I wouldn't say symposiums, the conferences. So the food world had these conferences that were things like Madrid Fusion or Gastronomica, where you would show the world like your latest fashion statement, essentially, right? Your coolest techniques. And it had run its course. And while they were important, what was not being spoken about at the level that I think that the industry needed was all the other shit that comes with being in this profession. It's more than cooking. And over the years, we've had many of them. And over the years, I've gotten to know many people at Noma. I think Noma and Momofuku, and it's this weird, weird uh, relationship, marriage, Nomofuku. Anyway, without talking forever, we'll probably edit a bunch of this shit out. (laughs) I got to know Dan Giusti. And Dan Giusti, I knew, grew up, you're a DC boy, right? High school in DC, so yeah, I could say. And that. you worked at a bar I used to get drinks at, and a bar, restaurant Clyde's. bar, yeah, Clyde's and seventeen eighty nine saloon, if you will. <laughs> Love Clyde's. So if you're from the DC area, Clyde's is like check out Clyde's institution. Everyone knows Clyde's. Mm-hmm. You left. What made you be like? Wait, I need to get to fucking Copenhagen. Yeah. And what year was this? It's 2011. 2011. I basically. I had become the head chef of a restaurant called 1789, which is also part of the Clyde's restaurant group, which most people don't know. The fine dining I, restaurant. I, I fucking knew. <laughs> and I, and I, I hate to put it this way, but to give it a picture, 1789 is the type of restaurant that it's been there for 40 years. Either you're going there because you're celebrating your child's graduation from Georgetown University. It's Easter, Mother's Day, or you're 90 years old. That's really the only people that are eating at that restaurant. I hate to say it, but it's true. I became the head chef there when I was like 23. And I spent three years spinning my wheels trying to change a restaurant that was perfectly good as it was. At one point, I literally made a list of restaurants. And I hate to say it because this sounds pretty bad, but it was literally like the three best restaurants I could think of at the time. And it was Noma, The Fat Duck. And Alinea. And I said, I want to go work in one of these restaurants. What the fuck? Momofuku wasn't <laughs> 2A? Fuck you, Dan. 2A. Fuck you. For the yeah. record, fuck you. Yeah, that's we'll true. We'll move on. But yeah, I just the, wanted to let you know that. I was I'm, thinking about it. You know, that was on the list. It just it was four. It was number four, actually. <laughs> it was a close fourth. 
And I wrote to all three restaurants. The Fat Duck didn't get back to me. Noma got back to me. And Alinea got back to me. I went to Alinea. It wasn't my cup of tea. And uh, I went to Noma for two weeks, and I, I loved it. So that was that. What made you love it? And what year was this? 2011. So th- this was the summer of 2011. I went there. I don't know. Again, I think a big part of wanting to go to Noma was literally to understand, like, what does this mean? You're the number one restaurant in the world. Like, how does- Was it the first time it was number one? Or the second year? It was the first year. Uh, you know, it's funny. The other thing is, like, I, at this point in my career, being at 1789, I didn't even know what the 50 best awards were. Like, I, I was, like, just, I didn't even know what Noma was. Somebody gave me the book. Like, I was so out of touch with the restaurant industry at that point. And I was just fascinated by it. And I really wanted, like, what does that mean? Like, what, like how do people walk around in a restaurant that's considered the best restaurant in the world? Like, that was fascinating to me. And I wanted to see what that was about. So... I went there and like people were running around like crazy. You've been there. Like it was fucking nuts. And like for me, I'd never but seen like, that. Again, most people have heard, not say no, most, some people have heard of Noma. Mm-hmm. Some, most people haven't been there. Sure. Most people probably have heard that they serve weird things sure. potentially. And like if you've had Nordic food or if you start to eat moss or cloudberries or <laughs> the style of plating it is and has become one of the most identifiable types of gastronomy cuisine in the world. Yep. And it was founded by Rene Redzepi and a couple other people, but Rene became the sort of leading figure right. of it in 2003. Right? right. It warms my heart to see how Noma happened. Right? Yeah, it's true. It's the fucking most underdog of underdog That's stories. Right. And we are in Copenhagen right now, and there are many people in the food world, like 600 people that are here to share ideas, exchange thoughts, blah, blah, blah. 15 years ago, no one would ever think that Copenhagen was part of the food universe. It was strictly in Spain, Europe as a whole, but not Scandinavia. And through sheer will and determination by head leader, one of my closest friends over the years, Rene Redzepi, and what became the Noma family changed gastronomy in a way that no one ever anticipated. It would be like the 16th seed in the NCAA tournament winning the fucking, fucking thing. Right. Not just one year, like five fucking <laughs> yeah. years. Yeah, exactly. You know? Taking over the dynasty. And I mean, I think- People forget that it was a Cinderella story. Again, to paint a picture of Noma and those people who are not familiar with it, you know, there's 45 chefs cooking for 45 guests and, you know, to hear stories about how there used to be like four chefs cooking for people. But I don't even think the chefs who are there now understand where it started and how long that took to get there. And they don't even know why cooks are dropping food. No. Right? No. So one of the things that you might experience in your restaurant, wherever you are, where now if you might go to a nicer restaurant— Someone, a cook might drop the food and explain to you what it is and the story behind it. That little fucking thing was a massive revolution. And that happened out of necessity because the Gnoma guys were short-staffed. I mean, honestly, it's crazy. I think there's so much happening. And I think it's funny that a lot of chefs don't recognize it. Like if you live in a big city, you think that your big city, if you're in New York or San Francisco, is that, you know, if you're in the United States, is that kind of the, is that the front of the pack as far as innovation goes? Not to think that like, some of the shit you see now in San Francisco was done at Noma four years ago. You just think it's like just coming about now. And it's kind of funny. I, I think most chefs don't even understand it. I mean, this isn't a crazy like sidebar, but it's important if you're in food or not in food to understand how something can be so significant. And I always try to think of, 
you know, sports analogies, right? Like sure. Joel Robichon just died. And I always thought of him as the Bill Walsh of, right. you know, Western gastronomy. Sure. Like he codified it in a way. Sure. And it was so systemized. Noma's basically the Golden State Warriors. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah, No one saw it coming. That's true. They had the players. They had all their everything, but no one thought it was going to happen. And what happened was they started to reject the modern ways of how people thought basketball should be played. And I was thinking like Patriots, but it's They not. are a little bit of the Patriots too. Because I'm thinking like Bill Belichick is a bit, you know, like the leader, the leadership role. People can, people argue that the players are very interchangeable in the Patriots. And I always thought that at Noma, the one thing that was amazing at Noma is that like I, I had no background really going into Noma and I became the head chef. Like those guys over there, they fucking put their heads down. They work. They're amazing. And it all comes under Renee and he like makes it happen. And like, it's like this genius, you know, bringing a group together no matter who's there. And like, I look at like their test kitchen and they've had like various people with various thought processes go through there, but somehow it's always steered in the right direction and remains successful. I was actually just pulling the Golden State Warriors out my ass. I actually believe that Noma has been more San Antonio Spurs. Fuck you, Sam. What, what do you mean? For sure. The pop? The pop, Popovich. Renee Redzepi as an older figure is more Popovich. The reason I say that but is he's San not Antonio's, an older, But he's not an no, older no, no, figure. No. He's not an older figure, but in terms of how it was run, there is a system and there's a philosophy as to how things are done. Okay. Right? There's a Spurs way. You're going to say there's not a Patriots way and not a Bill Belichick way? The reason why I'm going to say more Spurs is that it's way more international. It's the most international team okay. on the San Antonio Spurs. You. And if you ever visited Noma over the years, it is incredibly Would international. Would I be Ginobili? You That's look like question. Ginobili. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the only reason why to talk about Noma is that they came from nothing and developed a way to win. That no one ever anticipated. Actually and, referred to as seal fuckers. Yes, literally called seal fuckers. In the, in the Danish media, if you can imagine. Um, and that was an acceptable again, without thing without waxing poetic, what Noma was, was an um, expression that was about minimalism at the time. It was about locality. It was a strain of Ferran Adria, the El Bouyi school that hadn't been done. It still is hard to describe as to what it all is. But wound up, regardless of how the fuck we could talk about because we could talk Two hours about Noma-isms yes. and the Noma philosophy. To paint a picture, I think it's safe to say that for the average person out there, if you were to compare your favorite restaurant to Noma, it would make your favorite restaurant look like a fucking shithole <laughs> in every sense of the word, to be completely honest with you. When I talk about it to people and when I work there, regardless if you like the food, you don't like the food, you enjoy the aesthetic, you don't enjoy the aesthetic— if you think of your favorite place to go and eat, and then you compare that thoughtfulness to what happens at Noma every day, it's, it it's doesn't even fucking come close. It's next level. It's next level in every fucking sense of the word, in my opinion. And part of that is the system. And many people, many of my cooks have asked for stages, which is like an internship, and they've worked at Noma. And I meet uh, many, many people. It's become uh, a very important part of someone in the culinary world CV, both front of the house and back of the Big house. Time. Would you agree that people have learned some of the wrong things? Because Noma's been so successful. They all want to drink the Kool-Aid. They all want to know like how to bring this fucking magic home to yep. them. Yep, 100%. And I think it's funny because people go there, and I think it's important to say that a lot of the people who work at Noma in the kitchen are interns, and they're there temporary. So you have people that go to Noma for three months at a time, 
and they will go back to their country, wherever they came from. And some on, on the preface that they were at Noma for three months, open a restaurant. And this is in the media. So they go for a temporary period. It's like saying you acted in the Godfather right. as an extra in the back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the crowd exactly. The and then, and then yeah, that, it's, it's true though. And then they'll take away a couple pieces of this magic and you see it and it's fucking horrible. Like it's a joke. <laughs> it is. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times I've gone to restaurants and you see like moss fried and it's, and it's disgusting. And it's like on some horrible like plate. And it's like, you got to do the whole thing. Like when you go to Noma, you got, you need a lot of people to do that work. And if you have a restaurant that has three, four people working in the kitchen, you're not fucking doing what they do there. And you can't even try to be honest with you. I believe the secret sauce to Noma is will. Fuck yeah. That's it. Teamwork and the collection of talent in a way that we are all going to be so fucking organized that we may not know what the fuck to do. Yep. Or how we're going to get there. We're just going to do it. We're just going to fucking no, do it. No, it. it is. I mean, I'll even say like, and I say this in the absolute most positive way, and this is how I've started to lead my life. Like Renee would literally just say, we're going to do this. And then we'd figure it out. It was like, fuck it. Because the way he thinks is like, if you if you think of all the risks and all the problems that can happen on the way to doing that, then you're never going to do it. So it's a fuck it. Let's just do it. And you make it happen. And you have people that literally will fucking just do anything to make it happen. What I appreciate, and this is something I feel like we've spoken about the pod before, that I certainly share when I talk to Renee and people within Noma is the fact that we're going to do it and we're going to make every version possible for before we get there. We're not going to edit in our heads. We're going to go through the pain. That's right. I, I don't think people are ready to do that kind of work. To be completely honest with you, I think the reason they get to where they are is because they put in every fucking ounce of work that you can put in to do something. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And I, I love it because that's what Noma is to me. It is teamwork and a collection of people that are working as a like symphony almost. Yeah. Right. And Dan Juisty was for several years the head chef of Noma. And while Rene Redzepi is the executive chef founder, and many of the ideas come from him, you still need people to run the show. And the person that was executing these things and having input in every possible way was Dan. And I think what you were able to do, and I saw it because I've been coming to Noma shit since 07, 2007, was it was in many ways so much more beautiful early on because it was doing performance without a net, you know? Right. And it was crazy what right. was happening. It was beautiful. And then it became this professionalized thing that no one expected. Right. It's not a coincidence that the the next level of Noma, I believe, coincided with your leadership. Oh, thank you. That's a very nice thing to and, say. Uh, uh, we might edit that from the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just, just cut this. So what did you offer and how did you do this? And you came as a cook without ever knowing anything about Noma. When for the record, when I ate here with Dave Cho, he thought it, we were going to Nobu, right? <laughs> like this is something that many people at the time didn't know anything about and right. you rose to the top. What yeah. the fuck did you do? Honestly, it's a great question because I, I had only been there for less than a year and they, you know, they told me that they were going to make me the next head chef and for a year they groomed me to become that role and, you know, people- What do they see in you? I mean, I will say that I think, 
they saw that I'm organized. I could work well. When you have a team of 45 people, you need to be organized. You need to be able to work well with people. You need to be able to facilitate things and make things happen. By no means at any point in time was I ever the most talented chef who worked there. I know that. I will always have a tremendous amount of respect for Noma because they see qualities, true qualities in people versus like the flashy shit. Oh, wow. This guy's like just... He's running around fucking throwing pans around and getting shit done. It was like, this person's organized, they're methodic. And, you know, I, I will say Renee's the kind of guy that I've seen over time is able to see things in people that maybe they don't see in themselves and other people don't see in them either. So it's, it's pretty amazing. When he told me, this was so many years ago, he's like, I got this new fucking guy that's running the kitchen. And I'm like, and he's from your like hood, like in Washington, D.C., Virginia. I was like... Who's what? That? Who? Who? What kitchen? What, what? What was this motherfucker's pedigree? Seventeen eighty nine. What are you interviews? Yeah, he was the chef at like seventeen eighty nine. I was like, you're like, what, what the <laughs> fuck? What the fuck? Renee, Renee, hold uh-oh, on, uh-oh. hold on. And I'm like, where else? Tell me. He's like, Cli-. I was like, Clyde. <laughs> what? What the fuck? What the fuck is going on? And I was like, Renee. Yeah. Someone slip you fucking ass. Yeah. What's happening? What is happening? This is his pedigree. Yeah. And. When I saw your command of the kitchen, obviously it was clear to me why he put you in charge. It was, this is what you do. You care more than fucking anyone else. Right. That's what you have to do. And you care to the point where it is organized and you can inspire other people to care. I mean, I became obsessed. And I think think it's hard if you've never seen it because people think of a restaurant and food. And yeah, people understand that like, things are busy and things are this, but I I don't think like that service, those services that we had in that kitchen, particularly when you came and ate and how those things were, I mean, this shit was crazy. It was so fast paced and so focused and you had to be so demanding. I mean, it was just something that I think is very hard for people to understand if you can't see it. And when I saw how you were doing it, and this is a weird podcast, by the way, because it's like, it's much more easy when I'm talking to someone that I know everything about weirdly, but I remember looking at you and being like, this fucking guy gets it. This guy gets it. And I find it awesome that he worked at this fucking place. (laughs) But if people fucking knew, they'd be like, what? And what I knew right off the bat was it definitely bothered people in Noma. Yeah. I mean, I I, I could sense that. I'll tell you a funny story. So recently, well, not recently now, it's two and a half years ago, but I helped choose my replacement as head chef. And I remember the day we announced him Benning and it was like this round of applause. People were like, ah, oh, man, this is amazing. When Renee announced that I was going to be his replacement, I fucking kid you not. It was like crickets. <laughs> <laughs> there was like 80 people in a room and it was just, cr- people are like, who? What you don't Manu know? over there? What? <laughs> what you don't know is that I have video of Matt Orlando hearing the news himself being like, what the fuck? <laughs> What? What are you talking about, man? Is that the my legacy? They actually, they actually just picked a name out of a hat. That's how I got the job. That's actually really what happened. They're like, we just need someone who's like over the age of twenty six. But to in do this all job. seriousness, Renee has a crazy, uncanny ability to, to identify talent. For those that don't know anything about food and the stupid, fucking, jokey shit that we're talking about. Why would people not like expect you to be this? Yeah, now I, at Noma, within Noma, the own organization. 
I mean, again, like you're in this big time European kitchen and all the people who come through there, these are people who've spent all this time in all these other big kitchens and everybody talks about this. And again, I worked at restaurants that nobody's ever heard of. It was clear that I was kind of had a lesser kind of knowledge of a lot of things when I got there. Like I came in, there was these kids running circles around me who were like 23, 24, and I was like 27 and I was rusty. I was running this big restaurant in DC and it was a very administrative job. So I think when people saw it, they're like, like, and again, they're not looking at the same things that a guy like Renee's looking at. They're not, they're not identifying certain qualities. And did people then finally accept me for the role? Yeah, of course they did. But like people just thought of me as like the American guy with shitty experience. For those that listen to the Ringer Podcast Network and all the sports, it would be like someone tapping a young head coach that's never had head coaching experience and all the fucking senior people that are on the team being like, what the fuck? I would like to give a plug here for Doug Peterson, head coach of the world champion <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles. Very Doug Peterson. Go birds. Very Go Doug birds. Go birds. God bless. <laughs> God bless us all. So you read about Noma. You're never going to maybe hear about Dan Juicy, And I only. <laughs> he was actually terminated three no, years ago. But like anything great is full of people in the organization where you, we're integral to it. And especially without talking about how it lost number one and how hard you took that, we all, all, everyone I knew became fucking obsessed with validation through rewards. 100%. Right? So Noma lost the number one ranking. And I joke that the 50 world's 50 best is the fucking one ring of Lord of the Rings. I've known everyone over the past like 15 years that's won it. And it's it's a whole nother thing to talk about, but yeah. that's power. It's power that you possess. It's power, but it also controls you. Because I mean, once you're in it, you're in it. I mean, I remember the day I came back from London after we lost the 50. We just called it lost. If you didn't get number one, you lost. I remember going back that morning and it's just like, fuck, are these people going to work here anymore? Like people go to restaurants to work at a restaurant. It's number one. So like once you're in that game and once that's the label on you, you wonder like, that that controls you and it, it has to control you and it's hard to get out of that. Yeah, I, I thought about erasing your number and email from my book when you guys didn't get number one. I was like, wow, these guys are over. But I, <laughs> you, you know, it's you say that and it's funny and it is. And but that's I, what you guys were thinking actually. It's like crazy. You know how I think about it, but I think when I was there and a big part of my job as the head chef was speaking with guests, understanding where guest heads were at, you'd be amazed and how stupid it is that from one day to the next, even though the particular voting for that award ended six months prior, when they announced it, it was like the next day almost like, oh, it's not as good of a restaurant anymore. Like, it's crazy. I'm thankful that the 50 Best Award has been so fruitful for many of my friends. Sure. I was, we were part of it for a period. But I saw how this ring, for lack of a better term, like, could like distort things. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad that you guys experienced that. And I saw it and I saw it with Ferran, Heston, the Roca brothers, now the EMP guys and so on and so forth. And it was like, man, like, I don't know if I, I want that. And the reason we talk about this is you and everyone at Noma took it upon yourselves to fucking be like, oh no, we're winning this fucking Yeah, thing. pretty much. I mean, I will say that the year that we lost it, 
but people were like angry and they were like, fuck you, we're going to get it back. And you were like that. I was. You I were was, on a fucking, you I were man crazy. on fire. You I was Denzel crazy. Washington, man on fire. I was nuts. I was angry for a year. And I, I think of some of the moments that we had, but like people were on board. People were like, fuck this shit. We're going to get it. And when I look back at it and I, I come back to Copenhagen, this is the first time I've been back to Copenhagen since I left two years ago and see a lot of the team members that were there at that time and they still work for Noma. I mean, that created like a fucking bond. I mean, people were like, we all felt like we lost something. Like we all started at a restaurant and it was the best restaurant in the world. And then it was not. And it was like, it was our fault. Honestly, there's no other way to look at that. As much as you can argue and as much as I don't think I've ever been the type of person to say like, I really think accolades are, are the end all. When you're a part of that, how, else, how, else, how else do you think about it? What else, if, if there's a list and you're number one on that list and then you're number two, what do you, what do you just say? Fuck it. No. And that year, I knew you guys were going to get number one because when I tasted the food, I tasted anger. I tasted rage. I, I think still that was the best menu that was ever done in the four, yeah. 13 years I've been going to Noma because it was so fucking crazy focused. Menu aside, I know the focus in that kitchen, in that restaurant was fucking intense. Like intense and particularly I very specifically this is before I even knew you when you ate I clearly remember that night I mean I remember those services that's how focused it was I remember how things happened I remember what didn't go right what went wrong I mean it's wild to think that it even you know stays it in was my crazy head. it was like one of these like undefeated seasons and it's hard for to explain to someone when you're in that zone why you can't recreate it, that magic again all the time. But it was just one of these events where everything made Noma this fucking place you had to be at. Well, I'll be honest with you. I feel like Noma maintains this level of excellence all the time. But just like anything, and we, again, if you put into sports, you know, you could look at all these dynasties. You look at the Patriots and there's like, oh, when Randy Moss was on the team. Or, you know, there's these years that it was like, there was like a moment that was just like fucking crazy. And there was like all these things that just aligned. For me, I mean, at least in the time that I was there in the four years, that particular time, that summer was just like. And I saw the wear and tear of like, uh, of just being in the playoffs all the time. You know That's what, I mean? what it is. That's exactly right. I got an email being like, hey man, like I'd love to talk. I don't know. I'm happy. But I knew, you didn't have to explain, I knew. Right. You know, it's like, right. I have an undying allegiance to Noma and Renee. I am now, like, I just saw that you just gave birth almost to this whole thing. Right. And you had you needed time to reflect. Yeah. And what were you thinking, man? Like, something happened. What happened? I mean, first of all, you talk about wear and tear. I mean, that, we talk about all this, the playoffs, the playoffs. It is, every day, lunch and dinner. I was nervous for four years, every day, nervous. I mean, I put everything I had into that job. And at some point it takes such a toll on you. You start to think about like, I can't do this forever. And I was very conflicted because I didn't have, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And if I wanted to stay in restaurants, I think it would have been foolish for me to leave. But at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just know that my time was coming to an end at Noma because like it was hard for me. And I, I think it's the natural course of that position where you need to kind of have someone take it every three or four years. But I was like, what the fuck do I leave this job? Is this crazy? Like, am I an idiot to leave this job? How did you get to the conclusion? Because I know that you wanted to cook food and I know that you said you wanted to get back to like doing something that wasn't 
Right. It's like you wanted to coach like little league again. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You didn't want to coach yeah. pros. You wanted to get back to like right. just the love of it again in a different right. way. And I am trying so hard to explain it because I want to make sure that people respect everything you fucking did sure. to Noma, to your career. And because I know this legacy and working in this profession is so serious for all jokes aside, it's like, this is something you care tremendously about. Yeah. And I don't want anyone being like, what the fuck? You right. know what I mean? Yeah, of it's course. Like, it was sheerly out of fucking professionalism and respect right. and you did it right. Right. You, you, you left on the best terms possible right. and you got help about how to leave. What did you guys come to a conclusion as to what you were going to do? And what, what were you thinking about doing? I knew I wanted to feed a lot of people. I knew that. That's that's basically where the whole thing started. And I would say it got to a point where I realized that to do that was going to be through institutional food, which is kind of random. And I didn't formulate my idea much, but I knew I wanted to work in schools. And when I decided that I wanted to work in schools, that's when I told Renee. I hadn't formulated anything beyond that. And I will be completely honest with you. I've seen many people leave Noma and many people come back and many people stay because Renee's like, you should stay. But when I told him what I wanted, that I wanted to work in schools in the United States and gave him some kind of context about maybe some of the problems without even getting into details of what I was going to do, he was like, he was almost like blown away. I remember very vividly the conversation we had and he was kind of like, shit, okay. Like he didn't try to convince me for a second. And I knew that was hard for him because forget about my ability to do the job, just having someone you can trust and just leave all of a sudden is a very difficult thing to replace. And I, I think it would have, you know, in most cases he would have done whatever he could to say like, Hey, you should please stay or, you know, not, not in that way, in a begging way, but Hey, you should rethink this. But he was just like, wow. Okay. And that's why I have such respect for him because he never, never said anything like, uh, you sure you want to do that? Like, that's kind of strange. To him, that made sense. And I think to most people, they would challenge that idea. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter.com. You know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experiences for your job, and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter.com is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices fully guaranteed. 
Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy tickets for one of the last Dodgers home game series. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code CHANG. That's promo code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right seat, right now, right from your phone. And now back to the show. So the idea of cooking food in schools turned into this company called Brigade. Right. What is Brigade? Yeah, so basically what we do is we partner with public school districts. We help them interview, hire, and train chefs who otherwise would work in hotels, restaurants, put those people into schools, provide oversight, and transition those school kitchens from primarily processed foods to scratch cooking, keeping all the staff that was there previously, training that staff, creating relationships with students and so on. So essentially you're putting chefs into schools to run them like you would a restaurant. And why is this a problem for those that might have their head in the fucking sand? Yeah. So the majority of people understand that school food's bad. I don't think people understand why it's bad. It's very easy to criticize from the outside. So in a nutshell, if you're a public school, you participate in what's called the National School Lunch Program, which basically what you do is you have to create a meal that fits very strict nutritional guidelines that's dictated by the USDA. This is an 85-page document. If you create that meal that fits those guidelines, the federal government gives you a certain amount of money back. That certain amount of money this year for lunch was $3.31. That's a big misconception. People hear $3.31. They say, well, that's not a lot of money for food. But in fact, it's much less than that. The $3.31 has to go towards food, towards labor, towards maintenance and everything else. So at the end of the day, you have about $1.25 to make lunch, it has to fit very strict nutritional guidelines and the kids have to like the food. If there are no chefs involved in the process, clearly you're never going to have a, a tasty meal. So what happens is there's factories out there all over the country that are producing these meals because it's much easier for them to produce these meals in a factory setting. And then they get sold to schools and schools take these meals, heat them up and serve them to kids. And that's what happens. Everyone's wanted to tackle this. Yep. Why are you doing something that's different than everyone else. Like, how is it different? Because there's other countries of the world that don't have this problem. Sure. Right? Sure. Why have we fucked it up so much in America? Yeah. I mean, what happens in this country, basically, the way I see it, you can look at kind of two. In most cases, you either have the big company that's literally doing the bare minimum. They're making money off of this. These are large vendors that do food in schools. Uh, the quality is very low but they get the work done. They, they are able to stay on budget for these schools and that works. The food's not very good. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the people that are really focused on quality, but they're focused on quality and they're focused on what they want to do themselves, what food makes sense to them, the food that they like to cook as chefs. So a lot of chefs who've done this, several nonprofits who are run by chefs, maybe you could say, or 
that their mantras are very much rooted in food and the quality of food. Um, they're, they're not only working in a way that's not very practical to work within these guidelines that I talked about, but they're also more focused on what people are looking at what they're doing and, and, and how that makes them feel. Is it quality? Is it organic? Is it local? Is it seasonal? And then by the end of the day, you have food that doesn't fit the nutritional guidelines. You have food that does not fit the budget and the kids don't like it. So you have two ends of the spectrum. We're kind of right in the middle. We are focused on quality. We are. But we also have to be focused on practicality. Otherwise, we're never going to be anywhere. So on the bottom end of this, you have all these giant companies providing food in schools, and they're in most schools. And then at the top, you have these really kind of ambitious people, and they're in a school here and there, and they're not affecting a lot of change. Again, we're trying to go right down the middle where we're affecting a lot of change because we're being very practical, but we're trying to increase the quality as we go. So I think you have to be willing to have this, this mix, if you will. In terms of the spectrum of food for the school system, right? Those that are trying to affect change. On the left, you have people that, uh, I'm trying to do so I don't get in trouble. <laughs> because it's tough. Well, no, I, I don't know. No, no, you have people that are like, no, no, school food can only be a certain way. It has to be organic. It has to be this. It yeah. has to be that. It has to be perfect. No, these are people who have very, there's nothing wrong with it. They're people that have very, high ambitions. And these, like, look, if I came from the world that I came from at Noma, or let's say everything that I've learned my whole career as being a chef and say, I'm going to apply these principles to school food, I would have to keep it to a certain level. The fact of the matter is if you're going to do that, it's not very practical to affect many schools. If you're going to do that, you're only going to affect a limited amount of schools. Can you do it? Yes. But again, you're not going to affect a lot of people. So if your goals are to affect a lot of people, that's not a very practical way to approach it. And it's important, again, because their ideals of using the best-in-class ingredients yes. so forth are things that I know... Listen, you can't make great food with shitty ingredients. Sure. And I, I agree with Amal. Yes. In fact, like I'm on the board of the Edible Schoolyard. Right. This is something we are trying to get you involved sure, on. Sure, of course. One of my problems, not problems that I'm, I want everyone to understand is we need to feed people. Right. <laughs> we That's need right. to feed kids That's first. Right. And I'm not trying to say that the emphasis on trying to get the best of the best is anything lower, but we need to get to that goal. Right. There's a lot of kids that need to eat today. And quite frankly, the idea of only using a certain quality of ingredients, I understand that. But how do we get there? Seemingly, there's no plan to get there. And I think you have to start somewhere and work your way up towards that. And if you're not going to do that, you're never going to get there for a lot of schools. That's the thing. And on if that's the left side, on the right side, you have the corporate behemoth companies. Yeah, and you know what? I don't give a fuck. Well, at the end of the day, like they do their thing. And quite honestly, they're very honest about what they do. I think it's very rare that you hear them going around promoting that they have the best quality thing. That's not what they're doing. And they're actually pretty honest. They're like, we're going to come in. Because what happens is a lot of these schools struggle to, you know, I think it's important to say when you're a school food program, you can either do this yourself or you can get other people to do it for you. And a lot of school districts really struggle to run this operation themselves and they lose money. So one of the big companies comes in and says, okay, we'll save you here financially and we'll make food. But the quality tends to be on the lower side in most cases. And the kind of ambition towards making it better and working towards 
you know, a certain goal doesn't seem to be there and it does seem to be driven by financials, you know? So you start Brigade, your first school is where? In New London, Connecticut. And tell us what the first day was like. The first day, and this was actually documented by a podcast as well. The first day was an absolute shit show. We were way too ambitious with the food. We served food that kids didn't want to eat and we thought was great. Well, you're like, I want a fucking boudoir! <laughs> it was close to that. I'll be, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. We, we, you call that a boudoir? I mean, we saw some shit. I mean, we did some shit. Let's put it this way. We served. Let me just put, let me just paint you the picture here. So we have a woman and she's a legend. Let me just put that out there. She's a legend. She's 84 years old was one of the cooks. I mean, you have people all over the spectrum, people who've worked in schools for 30 years. Again, I think it's funny and you joke, but you know where I come from and you know how I was. And you can imagine <laughs> on the first day of school when we are just like sinking. I remember being like, oh my God, these kids are showing up now. And it's like my first instinct is to be like, ah, like freak, freak out. But you can't, you can't freak out. And it's like, you know, it's a hard thing to control, but we really just like- You got, I, you got 800 bad Yelp reviews coming your holy way. Holy shit. I mean, I, I remember- we opened in the middle school and the high school on the first day of school. And I spent the first, there's three lunch periods. I spent the first two lunch periods at the middle school. And then I went to the third lunch and I was like, oh, fuck, that's over. And then I went to the high school and I was like, oh my God, it was like the longest day I'd ever been in my life. And I mean, it really was like the hardest work I'd ever done. I was like, what is happening? And we did all this stuff and the food was way too ambitious and it was way too ambitious for us to produce. It was what was ambitious about the food? Okay, so we thought it would be a good, first of all, we- we're in a community that's 60% Hispanic. We wanted to make tacos. We wanted to serve tacos that are more authentic. So we wanted to use corn tortillas versus using flour tortillas. We used corn tortillas that were not of a high quality because that's only what we could afford. We did tacos that were made from kind of marinated and grilled chicken with your more traditional topping of like cilantro leaves and chopped onion. The corn tortillas were not sturdy enough. They fell apart because they were shit. No one wanted the cilantro or the onions. So it was just chicken. So the kids just ate the chicken. You know, one thing, one of our main initiatives from the beginning was serving um, fruit, cut fruit. So it wasn't just cut fruit because most schools that you just get like a whole shitty apple with like a sticker on it and it hasn't been washed and could just throw it away. So we're like, no, we're gonna, not only are we gonna cut the fruit, we're gonna prepare the fruit. So on the first day of school, we had what we called pineapple popsicles. So it was, you took the pineapple, you cut it into like 16th. So it was like a very lengthwise. So it was like a long triangular wedge. We put it on a popsicle stick. We brushed it with lime juice and sprinkled it with lime zest and chili. We're like, we got this. We got this shit. We froze them. We froze them. We're like, this shit is, this shit is balling. Kids are like, what the fuck? Like most kids took the popsicle <laughs> stick out and used it to brush everything off the pineapple. And it was just like I would have fucking paid to have been there and record the reaction of the kids. You're like someone going to like, hey Tommy, this motherfucker just put a pineapple on a stick. <laughs> but the the best part about it, the best part about it is we literally were like, this shit is on. You know what I mean? Like we weren't we weren't like kind of nervous about it. We weren't kind of like. I don't know how good this is. We were like, I mean, if you look back, there's probably like three Instagram posts on that. We're like, look at this shit. Look what we're doing in schools right now, motherfuckers. Look at this pineapple popsicle. Not to mention we, this is another thing we did. 
They were using disposable styrofoam trays, which is that as, that as much as that might come to a shock to many people in 2018 that a lot of schools in this country are using disposable styrofoam trays. They are. We switched to using plates, actual plates. And as much as like kids were like, holy shit, they're using plates. This is amazing. We didn't put enough thought into how those plates were like going to get cleaned. So like at the high school, we at one point had a thousand plates from high school students. It was like with no dishwasher to clean them. And it was like, okay. So that's what I did the whole first day. I just washed dishes because no one else was there to do it. So it was like, that just kind of, we just kind of sank to be completely honest with you. But we did it. I think the lesson is you just got to do it. So you had humble, you had to eat humble pie and you're working with cooks that are not working at Noma. They don't give a fuck who you are. No. I'm assuming. Oh, no, 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 no one, no one cares what Noma is. In fact, when I went to that small town, the idea of being from Noma actually hurt me because nobody knew what Noma was, but like people were writing these articles and they were like, the chef from this world famous restaurant is coming to town and people were literally like, why are you here? Like very skeptical why I was there. Like I was there to rock. Like you were a narc. No, or like, or I was there to like become rich off of their town. Like I was coming in to take advantage of the town. But obviously you're doing it to get incredibly rich. <laughs> yeah. This was, I think it's so funny. And I, and I've actually used this as an example. I said, you think, you think after leaving Noma, when I pretty, pretty much probably could have done anything I wanted, this was the choice I made to become rich is to work in, in the public school system. Again, I'm trying to give an analogy to people. Like you were, you were like top pick in the draft to do whatever the fuck you wanted. I actually thought about this back when you did it. <laughs> you would be like, hey, um, this guy's like uh, the number one pick. He's like Saquon Barkley or, or, or like some basketball prodigy and he's going to be able to be, go anywhere right. he wants as a senior in high school. He's going to make, like, not million. It's still good, but fuck. Like, he's going to be able to do really well. Let's whatever be he wants. honest here. Yeah, it wouldn't have been And he's right. like, no, I'm not going to take the athletic scholarship. I'm going right. to take the academic scholarship. True. That's true. <laughs> that's I, basically what you did. You know, I, I'm gonna, I don't think that's a great analogy. It's but not. We'll go with it. <laughs> I think you kind of lost it there. I don't know if you lost your train of thought. but I did. I definitely <laughs> lost it. But no, but like, how did you, how did you be like, no, I don't want to do this. I, think- I want to take, I want to actually not do the the easy path, and I do I, I know that I do think about when but I see enough. athletes that are like actually no I'm not going to go to the NFL I want to be a doctor you know what I mean I want to yes. be a social worker but you know what but you know what David and you said this earlier today the idea of and, and, and Noma kind of inspired me to do this like as much as you can you could put it that way like oh I could have done anything I want but instead I worked in school like I have chosen to do something which will set me up to make be more successful, more impactful than I could have ever done working in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth. Truth. You know what I mean? Like that's as much as I can say all day and people are like, man, great job. Like that's so amazing you did that. I made a choice that's literally putting me in a position to do more than anyone else is going to be able to do. So the reason I wanted to say that is because what's the reaction you get from people, not even just anyone of the industry that knew you and they were like, hey, Dan, what are you doing? Oh, wait, I hear you're doing what? What is the reaction? Right. I mean, I think it's funny. The reaction is like, to me, it's super naive. People think, you know, and I think it's important to understand that when you become a chef, working in a restaurant is what you do if you're like really in it. Working in an environment that you might work less hours or have weekends off or only work during the day, 
you know, like an institution, like a school, like a hospital is like selling out. Then not understanding and not appreciating the fact that what we do and the way we cook in a school is just as hard, if not harder than how they cook in a restaurant requires quite a lot of attention and skill. They think it's some temporary thing. And I've said it before that people after long conversations with me have asked me like, oh, so like, do you, so you have a restaurant in New London? Is that what you do? And it's like, how naive could you be? Almost just discrediting the fact that this is something that actually demands full attention. It's like almost like this problem does not demand full attention. And that it should, like, why would I be, why would I be, you know, putting my time into that? That it's an easy path. Oh, yeah, that it's an easy path. And it's like, you know, maybe you're taking a break. You're taking, you know, because people- What are you going to do serious shit Well, that's the thing. Well, people ask me, they're like, oh, are you going to get back into working in restaurants? And I'm like, if you ever listened to me talk about this or even read an interview with me, you'd understand that this is like a life's work now. Like, we've made things mildly better, but it's going to take a long time. Be like, so you're going to get back into fine dining? Like- at what point, if you saw what I was doing, would you think this is a trajectory for, for me to get back into fine dining? But they can't see. They're just, they're, they have blinders on. Why they, do they have blinders on? What do you think? Unfortunately, a lot of chefs don't think about the big picture. They don't. A lot of chefs don't. There are a lot of chefs who do. But a lot of chefs are in their own world of cooking for their restaurant. And, and I was in that world too. And I thought that way that the way this plate looks and this little detail on the plate was the most fucking important. It was so important that you could actually scream at someone for it. Like that matters that much. Like people are so caught up in this little tiny world that they're not thinking about other options and other things. And you are taught in this business, this restaurant world, that there's a very particular path and a very particular way to cook if you are successful if you are motivated, and if you are talented. And unfortunately, that is the world of fine dining and nothing else. Something we talk a lot about and something I've gone through, understanding the problems I've inflicted because of my own blind pursuit of awards or accolades. Mm. And it's a humbling thought and feeling. And it's, it's incredibly sad when you realize people don't need awards the only thing that I'm pursuing is some kind of narcissistic endeavor to make me feel good. Sure. But chefs, and I can speak, I, I think this is true. Chefs have the remarkable capacity to convince themselves of anything to the point when they feel like they're doing something selfless. It's actually just for them. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not going to, and I'm not going to sit here and say that that's wrong. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But like, own up to that. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's a lot of people out there that their whole goal in life is to win an award. I mean, if you fucking play sports, really the only reason you do, I mean, you don't play pro basketball to just play. You play to win the fucking championship. talking about championship. Practice, practice, bro. Practice, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it's for. So if you're a chef and your goal is, is to win an award, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What I think there's a problem is when you're trying to claim to yourself and more importantly to your team, the people who work really hard for you, that your goals are otherwise. And that's where things get funny because you have people working for you that they think they're working for one thing, but they're actually really working for another thing. And that's a problem. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there what people are trying to achieve. And you have a lot of chefs out there that they really are cooking for a very particular reason. And they really do enjoy 
training their staffs and they really do enjoy improving the craft and creating innovation. But because our industry is the way it is, they also very much feel the need to win awards. They really do. And I think it tears you apart because I think you lose track of what you're really doing in order to get those awards. And then I've talked to so many chefs who are like really successful. They're very confident in what they do. They do a great job, but then they're not recognized for what they do. And then it's like, well, what do I do? Do I just say fuck it and like try to be above that? But then they're like, if I don't get those accolades, like my business isn't there, people aren't coming to eat. So like I kind of feel the necessity to get those accolades. So it's a big mess and it's it really dictates how people cook in this in this world. It's a much larger discussion and sure. it's something that I really genuinely hope that we can have an open dialogue with our peer group. Yeah. I'm still working through it about awards. Like, of course I want the best sure. of the best, but of course it's got to be done in the right way. That's right. I think awards can change. And I think th- there's always going to be a hard way to give out awards and, and say like, this is completely fair and so on. But there's, there's a way to recognize, like in this particular s- circumstance, there's a way to recognize various things that aren't being recognized now. And I mean, it's to the point now in cooking where literally people who have 5,000 followers on Instagram can dictate what one of the best chefs in the world is cooking. And I think that's crazy. I don't understand that. What do you say to aspiring young cooks or people that want to make a difference or people that are like you, but they decided not to cook and give back, right? Like you are cooking food that is now for nourishment and real fucking cooking. Right. The kind of cooking that is the kind of fucking thing that we did that got us into this business to begin with. Right? I would say so in most cases, but not necessarily in all cases. No. For me, that's what it was about. Feeding people. Feeding people because, and, and, and maybe subconsciously that's what it was about. But like for me, I was like, I come from a big time family and like, I love this idea of sitting at a table and how I was fed and, and how I felt because of it. I mean, I wasn't, I grew up in New Jersey. I was not eating fine dining. I was not around these things. So that, that never crossed my mind. There's probably plenty of young chefs now when they're 16, 17, 18 years old. They know about this shit. They know about fine dining. They know about accolades. So it's quite possible that they are growing up with this kind of idea that that's what they want to do. For me, it was never about that. I think there's kind of two ways to classify cooking if you want to be it simple. One is cooking for yourself and one's cooking for other people. And I think you can do either. I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that do want to cook for other people. That's what they want to do. But they ultimately end up cooking for themselves. And that's and that's just how it ends up. When I see you get serious, it's like, it's obviously something where more thought is going into it than I, I realized. And I want to go back to the popsicle thing. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned something earlier today in the talk and you gave, uh, it's actually going to be on uh, the Mad Feed site. So Mad. Dot, mm. What is it? Mad Feed. Mad Feed. Denmark. Yeah. Or what, you, just you just Google, look up Mad Feed. Just Google. Man, you manage nobly mad. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no, but um, by the time this comes up, it'll be on and you can listen to Dan's talk. There was something that really knocked me on my ass today when you were talking about a three-day holiday right. when you're at school and we think that what we're doing is so fucking serious yeah, as right. like the fine dining world. Right. And then you deal with serious. Yeah. If you make a mistake or if you let your ego get in the way, people go hungry. Yeah. When, when you work in a restaurant and things aren't good enough, you're like, fuck, things aren't, we need to like, we need to ramp it up. Okay, fair enough. When things are like, when I think right now, 
Like, are things good enough right now in these schools? If I think they're not, it's like you fucking, you're doing a disservice to kids that have no choice and no option. And these were like the real eye-opening moments for me that like, like solidified the transition in my head from going from fine dining to cooking for yourself to cooking for other people and only other people and nothing matters about yourself was this idea of seeing kids and understanding the situations that kids are in. For example, we talk about the three-day weekend. Oh, it's Memorial Day weekend. Great. We're not great for these kids who don't eat. Or snow days. When we were kids, we celebrated snow days. Well, nope, these kids don't eat. Or seeing kids steal sandwiches to feed their families. So the meal that they eat at school is oftentimes their only meal for the day. There's a lot of kids that that's all they eat. And it's more kids than there should be. And even if they do eat, some of them eat shit at home and it's not much. It's not enough. You know, and the way the National School Lunch Program is set up, the portions aren't very big. So when you're an 18-year-old person and, you, you know, you might get these bigger guys who are football players and you see them like they're eating and they're trying to eat but there's like not enough food for them to even eat at school and then they're not eating at home and they're playing football or i remember the first summer i got to new london before we even opened the first year an 18 like 17 18 year old girl girl in high school she's in high school she came up to me and she goes i'm hungry she just told me she was hungry and i like went into this mode like i remember my aunt always doing where it was like Literally anything I could find or do, I was like scrounging together to give her anything I had. And it was like this weird moment where I was like, holy shit. Because you read about this stuff. Obviously, you hear about it. You read about it. I knew the town we were going into. One in four people under the poverty line. It's not like this was some mystery to me. But when you start to see like high school kids, it's like almost the worst with high school kids. Because I think younger kids, they almost don't really know. They don't really understand the situation they're in. And then when you meet an 18-year-old, 17-year-old girl who like knows what's going on and is, is essentially begging for food, you see that and that really starts to make you think about what you need to do and how you need to change your priorities. We need to change our focus. This is no longer about us. This doesn't matter. This is no longer about the fucking pineapple popsicle and making people happy. If kids want pineapple with nothing on it, we're going to make pineapple with nothing on it because that's going to make you know the best possible scenario for them. That's something that I've been trying to preach since. And it's a really hard thing to communicate to people because I think unless you see that, and, and now these are the people that you feed. It's one thing to be in a community where you know there's people that are not eating enough. But then when the people that you are in charge of getting food to are those people, you're like, fuck, we need to step this shit up. Why am I cutting this duck breast into a square? <laughs> right? Yes. Why am I throwing this best end out because it's the end cut? I feel like in two, two years, two and a half years, I've become so far removed from that concept I mean, the way we cook now and the way we do things, I'm so proud of it because I don't even think this exists in most restaurants. Everything is so deliberate and purposeful and thoughtful. Everything has to be done for a certain reason. And it's so the kids to make it as best as possible. And it's like, I mean, forget about that kind of stuff, wasting. I mean, you'd never, you can't afford to do that. You can't afford to do anything that is not going to impact the final product. Like even herbs, like fresh herbs. We can't really use much fresh herbs. But if we use them, you kind of use them in a way that like actually makes the most sense possible because you can only use such a limited amount. It's such a funny way to cook. But to me, just like anything, and just like when I look at a place like Noma, the reason the food is so creative is they've put so much constraints on themselves. 
we have so many constraints to work within that we have to be extremely creative. And even though the final product does not look very creative, the thought that went into doing it and making it and figuring out ways to get it there is very creative. For the record, Dan has asked me several times to help out and to promote and to do dinners and charity dinners. And some of the best chefs in America have all participated in their helping Dan out. I have physically not done it. And it's something I actually am regretful for because I'm so fucking busy. But no shit. I know at the very top of the list of people that need help, it's you. I do. And you know, it's funny because like I'm such like the last person I never want to bother people. I never want to go out there. But like, I think it's a combination that now that I'm on this path, I feel responsible to show that either this can work. And if we fail, it will show that it doesn't work. And if we show that it doesn't work, then it's going to set this whole thing back a far ways. Because for example, when Jamie Oliver came to this country, there was little problems because he did a TV show. And I think people misunderstood what he was trying to do. And, and people thought very negatively in the United States. And when I started to do this, people were like, oh, another chef's trying to do this. If we try to do this and we fail, it's going to set things back. So like I'm at the point now where I don't care. I'll do anything it takes to make this successful. It's not about me. Like as much as it is like promoting brigade, if you will, it's really just kind of ensuring that this works. And if it works, then a lot of other people can do it. I hope other people do it other places. And that's why I'm kind of shameless about it. Like, yeah. I'll just ask. And listen, like, you don't have to know me and you don't have to take my word for shit, but I rarely would back someone unequivocally if I knew that they weren't trying to do something for the betterment of like to make shit better. And there's not a wrong motive in this fucking guy's body. And I use your example to many of my own cooks. I know last year when, and we did a dinner in Austria an Angelina's event with a bunch of chefs from around the world. And uh, I was talking to Mei Chow in Hong Kong and we had some chefs from Austria and Philippe from Copenhagen and Slip Ryman was there and all these younger dudes. And I was looking at Renee and I was like, we're the fucking older dudes and the younger mm. generation of cooks, bunch of some of the top women and male chefs of our, in the world today, all said, we can't do what you do because you've already done it. Mm. And I was like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Like, they don't know what to do because they don't want to do fine dining. And I said, did you fucking see what Dan Juicy's doing? <laughs> you don't have to do what he's doing, but right. if you want to fucking affect change, it's not going to be in the four walls of a fucking restaurant. Right. The future of food is not in a restaurant. Right. It's everywhere else where people eat. Everyone has to eat. Everyone would rather eat something delicious. That's right. Not everyone has the means to do it. We need to reshift our focus about what the fuck restaurants do. And, and the best talent right now is often trying to win these fucking 100%, 100%. awards. And it's a very powerful moment when you said today, I don't give a fuck if you create a competitor to me. Yeah. The nice thing is, is that if you are looking for another opportunity to make impact or another opportunity to cook, there are so many opportunities, way, way more opportunities than you can think. I mean, there's, like you said, so little people are eating in restaurants, schools, hospitals, prisons, right. senior centers, home, people at home. How can you make people's lives at home better who don't have a lot of money? How can they cook? I mean, if you're clever and you think about it, there's so much you can do. You if know? I wasn't doing Momo and I told this and I still have tried this, I would make food in hospitals. Yeah. I don't understand why the fuck hospital food's so motherfucking bad. Right. And it's so goddamn expensive. And the crazy thing is, 
if anyone really needs to eat well besides kids, it's people that are fucking sick. Of course. It's the worst. And, and these are all populations that have like no choice. There's, they have no, they're, they're vulnerable. They're either old, they're sick, they're young. And we feed them, we, we treat them that way. We basically say, fuck it. You have no choice. You have nothing else you're going to get. So we're just going to give you the worst food possible. So I'm super proud of Dan and what he's done. And I know that he's on this journey that is sort of like this crazy vision quest that I back more than he realizes. And if anything, I think it's a clarion call to many people in this business to have some reflection as to what they're doing and to realize that they can affect positive change in many different ways. And it doesn't have to be school lunches. Right. And you need to ask yourself why you're cooking what you're cooking. And if you do decide to stay in restaurants, because more than likely I'm staying in the restaurant business doing what we're doing, it definitely puts perspective as to how we can do it better. Because of shit that you're doing. And I think that you are carrying on this legacy that you learned from Noma. And I was like, I'm pretty sure Dan Juiste's the goal, without even asking you about this, is he's going to try to say, he's not going to stop the people say some of the best food they've ever eaten was in a fucking high school, was in an elementary school in New London, Connecticut. If you don't have that goal yeah. and you can't reverse engineer from the impossible, you're not dreaming big enough. No, you're right. That's it. I, I'm with you on that. I think, why even do this shit? Honestly, that's how I think. And maybe that you need to be super ambitious. And I, I don't think anything is too far-fetched. I mean, it's food at the end of the day. It's not like it's, right. we're, we're doing brain surgery. If know? the Eagles can win the Super Bowl, I think this shit can happen too. Fucking right. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, sir. Done.